the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your just and righteous decrees endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel is according to St. Matthew, the 10th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. This will also serve as the basis for the message this morning. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and her daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. We confess together the Nicene Creed. Well, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus often makes statements that make us step back and go, huh? Did Jesus just say what I think he said? In the gospel lesson, there are at least four puzzling paradoxical pronouncements that Jesus makes. And in the next 15 or 20 minutes or so, I want to try to solve some of those puzzling statements. First of all, in verse 34... Jesus says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. But didn't the Son of God descend from heaven above to this earth so that he might bring peace to this world? I mean, didn't Isaiah the prophet foretell that the Prince of Peace would come as our Savior? Did not Zechariah sing of the coming Messiah that he will guide us in the way of peace? Did not the angels greet Jesus' birth with the words, glory to God in the highest and peace to people on whom his favor rests? And did not Jesus say of himself, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace? So, What does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword? Well, Jesus' claim that he is the Lord and the Savior of the whole world is met with both belief and unbelief. For every person who believes in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, there are just as many, in fact, there are more, who don't believe in him, who reject him, who even despise him. Many reject his claim that he is the Son of God. Many people do not believe that he is the only Savior of the world. 
And there are others who are intolerant of Jesus when he says that they must repent of their sin and believe in him as their Savior. Even during his earthly ministry, many people plotted and they schemed to embarrass him, to ridicule him, to even kill him. One commentator explains Jesus' puzzling words by drawing an analogy to what life is like under a dictatorship. All is calm and, and all is quiet, at least on the surface, until someone tries to challenge the dictator's rule, and then all hell breaks loose. Kind of like what we saw many years ago in China, Tiananmen Square, when there were people rising up against the, the communist regime but they were quickly squashed. Well, all was quiet on the spiritual front. For about 400 years, from the time of the prophet Malachi to the prophet John the Baptist, there was relative silence. There was very little activity going on, and Satan seemed to have his way. I mean, people were going about their business, they were getting caught up in the self-righteousness of, of their works. But then John the Baptist was born. And shortly thereafter, Jesus was brought into this world as well. And the uprising, the revolt, was on its way. And Satan's regime was being threatened. It was beginning to teeter and totter. And it was soon to collapse. And all hell literally broke loose. I mean, Satan strikes back and John is beheaded. Jesus, the Savior, has his character attacked. And Satan manipulates things so that Jesus is even assassinated, so to speak. And the devil seems to succeed. For Jesus is condemned as a criminal and he's crucified. But that was all part of the plan, wasn't it? That was all part of God's plan to save the world. That was God's plan to overthrow Satan by having his son, Jesus, die on the cross. And we're even told in the Bible that Jesus descends to hell to announce his victory, his victory over the devil and his minions. And then Jesus sends out his disciples into the world with the powerful word of God, the sword of the Spirit, so that they might do battle, ongoing battle with Satan. You see, Satan still torments and tempts Jesus' followers today. The prince of this world, as Paul calls him, is still trying to win our allegiance. He's trying to bring us over to the dark side, if you will. There is a spiritual war going on for our soul. And it's being fought in our minds and in our hearts. It's being fought in our homes, in our marriages. It's being fought in our workplaces, in our schools. It's being fought in our churches, and yes, our communities. Many a Christian who is growing in his or her faith, many a congregation who's going about faithfully doing the work of the Lord, better be prepared for an all-out assault by the forces of hell. An old adage says, and it's often attributed to Luther, the saying, where God builds the church, Satan is sure to build a chapel. 
You see, when Jesus talks of bringing peace to the world, he is first and foremost talking about a spiritual peace. The fact that God is at peace with us. See, the Bible tells us that you and I were once God's enemies because of our sin and because of our rebellious ways. But in his love for us, God sent his son into this world to die on the cross of Calvary to forgive us of our sins. And it was because of Jesus' sacrifice on the battlefield called Golgotha that we are at peace with God, or more appropriately, God is at peace with us. Meaning that God forgives us of our sins. St. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, as a result of Jesus' death on the cross, believers in Christ experience peace. The peace that comes with knowing that our sins are forgiven. The peace of knowing that God has buried our sins in an unmarked grave. The peace that comes from knowing that sin no longer has mastery or tyranny over us. And that is why we can say, as we did at the beginning of this message, God's grace, mercy, and peace is yours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, there's a second paradoxical puzzling statement that Jesus makes in our text. Quoting the prophet Micah, Jesus says, I have come to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, isn't Jesus' message a message of love? Isn't Jesus' message one that brings forgiveness and reconciliation? Doesn't Jesus' message of love and forgiveness unify people? And wouldn't we think that that would take place within our own homes? I mean, doesn't Jesus realize that the basic structure of our society is, is the home? And if the home is in turmoil, so will our nation be in turmoil? So what does Jesus mean when he says that he's come to turn the hearts of family members against each other? Well, sadly, Jesus is just simply stating a truth. A reality that is true. Jesus is a polarizing figure. He's polarizing because of the exclusive claims that he makes about himself and our need for him to be our savior. I mean, Jesus' message is one of love and forgiveness. Jesus' message does bring reconciliation and healing into people's relationships with God and with each other. But, and it's certainly mind-boggling to me, but for any number of reasons, many people, even within our own homes, our own families, think of Jesus as being irrelevant, even dangerous. And many despise him and reject him. And as a result, they reject us. That's the way of discipleship. You know, last week we heard that the prophet Jeremiah was arrested and he was beaten and he was locked in a stock and insulted, insulted by his compatriots. And why? Because he preached the word of God as God gave it to him. We can recount story after story of family members responding to the conversion of loved ones with anger and rejection. I mean, just recently I was reading a story about a, a man who was once of the Hindu faith. And he converted to Christianity. He came to believe in Christ as his Savior. And so he shared with his parents that he was now a Christian. And what was the response of his parents? 
they rejected him. They rejected him, they disowned him, they shunned him, and they forbade anyone else in the family from having relationships with him, for in their eyes, their son was now dead. Flannery O'Connor Riley remarked once, he said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Yes, non-Christian people, people who don't know Christ as their Savior, think of us as being odd. In fact, some think that we're repugnant because we follow the truth, who's a person. Yes, some of us might be ridiculed and rejected like that of the Hindu convert by our own family. Others of us may experience isolation from our friends. Some of us may have heard co-workers taunt us, whisper behind our back because we believe in God as our creator and Jesus as our savior. We might have even heard snickers and sneers from our classmates. The rejection we experience, even by our own family and our friends, our co-workers, our classmates, is maybe one of the heaviest crosses that Jesus calls us to bear when we become his disciple. But when the Lord says, you shall have no other gods, he means it. And he means that not even our spouses, not even our parents, our fathers, our mothers, our brothers, our sisters, our children, our grandchildren, they are not even to be more important to us than our relationship with our Lord. We are not to make them our gods. Hence Jesus' words in our text, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus himself bore this cross in his own life of ministry. The Apostle John tells us that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. It wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection from the dead and he appeared to his brothers that, that they came to believe in him as the Lord and became his disciples. If this is a cross that the Lord is laying on you, then know that he understands he understands the ache and the pain that you're enduring. And he invites you to take it to him in prayer. Here's a third puzzling statement made by Jesus in our text. He says, he who finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you really stop and think about this one, this statement... It is such a radical statement from what is commonly championed, not only in Jesus' day, but was, is championed in our day as well. I mean, isn't my life about my personal fulfillment? Isn't it about me reaching my goals? Isn't it about me living life according to my truth? That's what we hear all the time, isn't it? And Jesus' response to such narcissistic thinking is an emphatic no to all of those ideas. You see, the life that Jesus wants for us is experienced when we reject and repent of our sin and instead live our life to God's honor and his glory and we live in his grace and his forgiveness in Christ. 
The life Jesus wants for us comes when we abandon self-love and self-fulfillment. And instead we love and we serve Jesus with our whole heart, soul, body, and mind. The life Jesus wants for us is realized when we make Jesus' goals our own and when we govern and conform our lives according to his truth and not our truth. It's in servanthood, serving Christ and our neighbor, like that of Jesus, how he served his neighbor, that we are great in God's eyes. It's in the denial of our sinful flesh that we experience fulfillment and God's forgiveness. It's in death, dying to our selfishness and our self-love, that we experience life in Christ's love, his love for us. We reject the arrogant attitude that says, I don't need God, I don't need Christ, I live for myself. No, we reject that. And instead we confess, I die to myself. I die to my sin. I die to my self-love. For I am a lost and condemned person, a sinner. But thanks be to God, I'm saved by Jesus Christ. And so we deny ourselves. But the eternal rewards are unimaginable. Here's a fourth puzzling pronouncement by Jesus. If anyone gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. You know, the Bible often focuses our attention on the spectacular miracles that Jesus did. But if we stop and think about it, Jesus' life, his day was filled mostly with just, like, walking, teaching, eating, sleeping, and attending services in the synagogue. Just simple, ordinary, everyday activities. But during these everyday, simple, ordinary activities, Jesus met people, he ministered to people, and opportunities were manufactured so that he might share with them the good news that he is the Savior, their Savior. In the book, Conspiracy of Kindness, Steve Shogren tells the story of, of Joe Delaney and his eight-year-old son, Jared. Joe and Jared were outside one day throwing the ball back and forth to one another when Jared said to Joe, Dad, is there a God? And Joe, not really having grown up in the church or knowing too much about religion, said, well, I'm not really sure. I don't know. And so Jared, well, he ran off into his home, back into the house, and he came out, and a few minutes later, and he had a helium balloon and, that he had gotten from the circus. He had a piece of paper and a pen. And he said, Dad, I'm going to send God an airmail message. And then he wrote this little note. He said, he wrote on it, if you are real God and you are there, please send people who know you so they can tell us about you. And then he let the balloon go up into the air. And as it went up into the air, Joe, wasn't really a believer or anything, said, prayed, God, if you're there, I hope you're watching. Well, two days later, Joe and Jared were driving down the road, and they saw that there was this car wash. And so they pulled in, and the car wash was being sponsored by Steve Shogren's church. And when Joe asked, how much do we owe you for the car wash, they were told by Steve, it's free. It's free. No strings attached. 
But why are you doing this, Joe asked. Well, we just want to show God's love in a practical way, Shogren answered. Are you guys Christians? You know, the kind of Christians who believe in God, Joe asked. And Shogren responded, yes, we're those kind of Christians. And from that encounter, that simple encounter, Steve led Joe and Jared to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it seems counterintuitive. It's paradoxical, really. But God's Spirit uses simple acts of kindness, like a free car wash or a cold cup of water on a hot day, to open the door for conversations about Jesus. Who do you know that maybe needs a free car wash? Who do you know needs a cup of cold water on a hot day when they're working out in the yard? See, little simple acts of kindness like that open up doors. They manufacture ways for us to not only share the love of Christ through our simple acts, but also to share the love of Christ through our witness, our words. I saw a sign in front of a church one day. It said, no one can help everyone, but everyone can help someone. Who's that someone for you? A study from about 20 years ago disclosed that in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the church to which St. James is affiliated, that it takes an average of 75 people and $31,000 to bring one adult person to faith in Christ, to have one adult conversion. Now, I'm not sure if there was a study done you know, today whether or not those numbers would be the same or not. But even if they came down a little bit, should it really take that many people to have just one adult convert? Should it really take that much money to have just like one adult convert? I mean, doesn't it just take a cup of cold water? A simple act of kindness with the free word of God shared with them? That word that is powerful, that the Spirit can use to bring faith into the heart of that person, create faith in the heart of that person? Yes, it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. So, yes, our text has at least four puzzling paradoxical pronouncements. Puzzling in some way, needing, yes, some explanation. And we could go on with each one of them and explain them a whole lot more. But what isn't puzzling is the message that Jesus is communicating to us. Jesus is saying to us through those puzzling paradoxical pronouncements that he is the Lord. He is our Savior. And he is saying that he's calling us to love and to serve him with our whole heart, soul, body, and mind. And he is saying that he sends us out with cups of cold water so we can share his kindness with others, engage them in conversation, and share with them the message of Christ's love telling them of Jesus' death and resurrection. For in him and him alone is the abundant life. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.